Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This highly practical podcast series explores HR and management hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life people professionals. Brought to you by Actors Software, our aim is to build a better workplace for people. The HR Uprising is about collaborating and supporting each other to build the confidence and skills to rise up to each challenge and deliver real, lasting business value. You can find out more at hruprising.com or join our LinkedIn community. Now introducing your host, chartered psychologist, best-selling author, entrepreneur and speaker, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast and we've got a real HR episode this week and I'm very excited that I've got one of HR's most influential movers and shakers with me this week in the form of Gary Cookson. So Gary, he's a dad of four, husband of one, he's a director at Epic, he's his own business and he's an expert in workplace performance. I think many of you will know him as being very involved in um He's very, very active online, uh, very much brings him whole, his whole self uh, to social media, which is one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to him because I thought he came over as a really, really genuine person. So I'm really delighted, Gary, that you've been kind enough to spend some time with us today to tell us your real HR story. I'll try my best. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> You're most welcome. So do you want to give us a little bit of background about your career journey? I'll try not yeah. to interrupt you too much, but I'm sure I'll ask you questions along the way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, right. Okay. I've got to go back over two decades, I think, to start this story, uh, but it's all relevant in some way. Okay. Well, way, way back when I had hair, I trained to be a secondary school teacher and I really enjoyed teaching. I was a history teacher and I loved teaching history. It was a really great topic and I found I was pretty good at teaching. There was only one real problem about being a secondary school teacher. It was that I didn't like teenagers. So it's a bit of an occupational hazard and I realised that I needed to get out of the classroom relatively quickly. Uh, it was some teenagers are OK and I've got a couple of my own now so I can deal with a couple. But a class full of 30 of them that are sat there arms folded, um, most of them not wanting to be there, most of them bigger than me. And that was just the girls. And it was a real struggle. Yeah. to teach people who didn't want to be there and didn't want you to be in front of them talking to them. So I got out as quickly as I could. But I realized that I was probably onto something with with teaching. I, I found I could understand how people learn and I could structure sessions to help them to do that. So I thought there's got to be a way I can try and do this with people who are a bit more keen, a bit more enthusiastic. And I I landed in what ended up being an L&D job, but I wouldn't have described it as that at the time. But looking back, it definitely was. I went to a company called ICI, and ICI don't exist anymore, but people of, of our age, I think, will yeah. understand that ICI was one of the, the biggest companies in the whole UK in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. And I came in at the back end of that when they were getting smaller fast. They were selling all, all kinds of businesses, and they were changing. And I was part of a big business process re-engineering project where they were trying to just downsize all of their processes and all of their systems and make everything work for a business that was a lot, lot smaller. Talking about going down from hundreds of thousands of employees to just a thousand or so. And what works for organizations of that size don't work for organizations of a lot smaller. So I was part of the the training element, the L&D element of, of doing all of the BPR stuff. And I was brought in because I was good in front of groups of people. I could stand up and talk. I could design training sessions. And they brought me in to do that. And I really enjoyed it. 
really, really enjoyed it. And I started being exposed to what I now know as OD work because I could see restructures, organization redesign. I could see change programs. I could see re, uh, redundancies and redeployment. And I could see all these things happening. And I was learning by just watching these things yeah. unfolding as well as doing the training. And there was lots of HR people who were in my project team. And they said, have you ever thought about doing your CIPD qualification? I, I hadn't thought about that at all. I was still thinking I might go back into teaching. And they said, no, you'd be really good at this people stuff. You've got a real real good understanding for it. So I thought, well, why not? So I started doing my CIPD qualification over the period of about four or five years. Did you do the HR one or, or the L&D? Because there used to be, that then there used to be an HR one and an L&D one, didn't they? I, I did bits of both and there were, there were both. I started out at the level three and I did the HR version at level three. And then as I moved up to, to what was then the CIPD professional qualification, you could do what used to be called electives, which were optional modules. And I took the L&D route through those, but there was a good grounding in what they called core management and core personnel development before you got into the, the specialist electives. But my specialist electives were all L&D, which reflected what I was doing at the time. And I, I then moved on from ICI because it was a, a two-year fixed-term contract and that ended. And I moved on to what was my first L&D role. And it was a, a peripatetic trainer-type role. So here, there, and everywhere, delivering courses, designing courses, delivering them. And it was for a what well, we called ourselves a call centre. And I suppose we were, but we were, we were like a, what I'd call a pop-up call centre. You ever watch... EastEnders or Coronation Street, at the end of those programs, it says, if you've been affected by this program, please call this number. That that was us. That was really? We, yeah, yeah, that was who we were. And we would set up call centres in response to big storylines from the major soaps. Now, obviously, they don't give you loads of notice. They maybe give you about four or five weeks notice of there being a particularly harrowing storyline. So we'd get a call on a Monday morning from the BBC. You'd say, right, we're going to have a story about child abuse next month. Can you set up and staff up a call centre to deal with about two weeks worth of, of lots of people getting upset about this particular storyline? Yeah, OK, we'll do that. So then we had to think about where in the country is that going to be? So we had to find office locations that were ready made that we could move into with the right infrastructure. We then have to very, very quickly recruit people to staff up this call centre, bring them on board and throw them onto the phones very, very quickly. And my role was to do all the, the onboarding and induction side of that. It's a very, very fast-paced environment. What sort because, of people were they then? If they Because I'm kind of thinking, it's, I'm thinking like mental health first aiders, but in a kind of grand scale, but on a topic topic scale. Yeah, I think they would be first mental health first aid. There was no <laughs> such thing back then, but mm. that's probably what they would be. But they were, they were guidance counsellors. They were uh, relationship counsellors. They were Samaritans yeah. doing some stuff in the spare time. They were that type of background. Yeah. Or if, they were, if there was a particular specialist niche to it, let's say sexual health or mental health, then they might have that particular background. So you had to know where to recruit, how to recruit, get them on board quickly. There was lots of fractional working as well because people could say, well, I'll do a couple of hours each night. They didn't want full-time work. So there was all kinds of working patterns. And I was learning about HR and rostering and resourcing by doing that. But it, it was too fast-paced for, mm. for me. And at that time, I was, well, let's say I was having, me and my wife were having our first child. 
And my work was taking me all over the country at the mm. drop of a hat. So my boss would tell me, oh, yeah, next week for the next month, you're going to be in Cardiff because that's where our next call centre is. And then after that, you're going to be in Belfast for a month. And then after that, you're going to be in London for a month. And it was, wasn't yeah. good for bringing up a family. So I, I stopped doing that and moved to a further education college very close to where I lived. And that was a real change of pace. Real change of pace. Very One exchange to another because you've gone from reactivity. Yeah. So it's almost the interesting things you said you quite liked the strategic bits, at the, your OD bits, and then you'd gone into quite a reactive piece. Yeah. And then, and then it will feel completely different in your further education, I'm guessing then. It, it did. Yeah, it was like swimming through treacle. And it was, it was hard. I mean, it was good because it was on my doorstep. I could walk to work yeah. and I enjoyed the role. It was a training manager role. Really enjoyed it. Lots of nice people. Uh, and, and stayed there for a couple of years just until I felt that my family weren't needing me on, on site as much as I felt they had been. And then moved to a different job, which, which I ended up staying in for about 12 years. My favourite job, working at Golden Gates Housing Trust for 12 years. And I was head of HR there. And never intended staying 12 years, only thought I'd stay maybe two, maybe three at the outside. Best laid plans and all that just didn't work out that way. And I fell into the HR role. It started out being an L&D role. And at that time, the organization had an outsourced HR provision and it wasn't working. They, they were very remote. They weren't very responsive and, and they didn't get on well with the managers and so the outsourced HR wasn't working, but I was, I was on site, I was there, and people knew, even though I was an L&D professional, they knew I'd got an HR qualification. And so they'd come to me and they said, well, I don't like calling the outsourced HR team. Would you mind helping with this? And so every day I was doing HR stuff. Right. And, and then all of a sudden the chief exec came to me and said, well, we're getting rid of the outsourced HR provision because I don't think it's working. How do you fancy being our head of HR? And I went, um, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And didn't really think what that actually meant, but I, I did it. There was no interview. That was the extent of it. But he just gave me the ball and I ran with it for 12 years. I don't think I was ready for that role. In fact, I know I was nowhere near ready for it. Very inexperienced, very, very green, but great opportunity to have because they didn't have an HR team in-house. And my job was to set one up and create it and create all the right policies and procedures and the, the structures and the systems that we needed to have. So I, I became an HR professional at that point and then spent you know, nearly two decades doing HR work, generalist HR work, There's a and connection. making loads of mistakes. Well, I mean, but then you're learning. I think that's, that's where I suppose I was going to go with the question, actually, in mm. that you've got this learning theme all the way through, right? So you started out as a teacher and then mm. you went into realizing it wasn't that you didn't want to teach people. You, you wanted to help people learn and learn yeah. yourself and actually teaching. I mean, I went trained, my background is learning and development. And I remember thinking, God, teaching, no, but teaching adults, because they're choosing yeah. to be there. It's completely different, isn't it? Mm, yeah, and, then, yeah. and you've got that learning all the way through. But I mean, I'm curious. So if you, if we've got someone who's listening to this, who feels that they've um, been given an opportunity slash thrown in at the deep end, um, what did you do when you were in that to you stayed there 12 years so you can't, must have done a decent job um, to learn as you went through it how did you enable yourself to uh, yeah I, I guess do a good job and, and develop yourself when mm. when the HR person when you were the HR person that's in theory responsible for development 
Yeah, I think it's a case of practicing what you preach in L&D. We often tell people about things like the importance of reflective practice and the importance of having a, an approach to continuous professional development and, to, and learning from things and journaling and, and reflective logs and things. And it's no use telling people about those things if you don't do them yourself. And so I did a lot of that reflective practice, looking back at what, what I'd done, what, I, what had gone wrong, what had gone well, what I could do differently next time. I had a mentor, I had a coach, internally and externally okay, so all the things I was telling people to do about how to become it. a better professional I, I applied those myself and that really helped me really helped me I needed that sounding board of a coach and a mentor to be able to say or, or to challenge me on things and also to tell me that they wouldn't have done it that way and that they might have tried it a different way I needed that very much and on that though because there's quite a lot at the moment with the virtual environment about having mentors particularly and coaches and and stuff did you I take it they had slightly different roles was it a mentor was about the understanding the organization and the coach was about did did they have different roles or how did they were were different people they were different people but they, they played very different roles as well so the coach was a very traditional coach challenging my thinking questioning me getting me to say out loud the things that, that were in my head. And that was a helpful process for, for me, you understand it about myself and the things I, that were in front of me. The mentor was very traditional, wise old head type of thing, been there, done it, was external to the organization and was able to give me different insights from their career and connect me to people and to get me involved in lots of different things and shape some of my experiences. So two different people, two very different roles. And actually that sounds like what mentoring should be in many ways yeah. as well, for that ex- experts kind of guidance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So, so what made you decide, you obviously did loads in there. I mean, give us a couple of yeah. other highlights and then also why did you leave? Okay, yes. Um, right, well, the highlights, we, we restructured the organisation a few times while I was there. So I was involved in large-scale restructures. We went through some big chupy processes, transferring people in and out of the organization. We moved head offices, which is a real big undertaking, bigger than you might think it was, and exposed me to lots of cultural change aspects as well. Changed terms and conditions and moved away from national pay bargaining and, and national collective bargaining and went on to local terms and conditions. So there were loads of good things there. And then we began to explore a merger with a, a nearby organization. So in terms of big ticket organizational development projects, I did all of them during during that particular time and set up what ended up being an award-winning HR team that, that reported to me. So that was really good too. And, and then we went into the merger and that's why I left. And that, that'll be a familiar story, I think, to many people listening to this. Uh, we were the junior partner in that merger. It, it didn't didn't say so no one said that out loud but we were it was portrayed as a marriage of equals but there's no such thing in a merger situation somebody's culture always wins out and it wasn't ours and the organization changed around me and I stayed for a while post-merger stayed in kind of a an integration role for about a year but my heart wasn't in it lots of the people who I'd been with for 12 years they went. Some took early retirement. Some were very quickly moved on. Other people chose to move on. And everybody who I was close to went or was going. And the organization, its values, its culture didn't didn't sit well with me anymore. It wasn't the place I wanted to be anymore. So as soon as I could, took about 12 months, I moved on because I, I, my heart wasn't in it anymore. Yeah. I couldn't really stay there and see everything I'd built torn down. 
I had a really similar experience actually with the business I worked with and they went from being 2000 people and we'd set up talent management and, and everything mm. in there. And then um, basically, well, I, I left before it went right down, but right now they have now got 400 people in that organization. So you, you yeah, can't, yeah. If, you've, if you've built something up, you, you can't really do it again. And if, you, if your heart's not in, you've, you've done no. the best you can, it's time to go and start fresh. Yeah. 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 No, I can, I can apply to that. So then you went on to Trafford College. <laughs> yes. So back into further education and yeah. just like the first time, it was again, a big change of pace. But whilst I'd gone, how many years, 12 years in between my stints in further education, I felt that further education had stood still during that time. And I was going back into further education and finding that I was having to do things that I'd done in the housing trust 10, 12 years previously, having to repeat myself and, and dealing with attitudes and towards HR and people management that I'd, I'd le- dealt with and left behind over a decade earlier. And it was really hard to slow myself down, really hard to slow myself down. And I really struggled. And I think both myself and the organisation would, would agree that we weren't a good fit for each other at that point in time. I was trying to get them to go to places that, that they weren't ready for. And they were trying to get me to do things that I considered to be buried in the past. And it wasn't a good marriage. So it lasted, I think, about 18 months before I realized I couldn't stay there any, any longer without sacrificing what I wanted to be as an HR professional. I was very well paid and I had a tremendous amount of annual leave. And if I wanted a job for life where I could have sat twiddling my thumbs all day long, I could have stayed there decades. But I would have slowly, um, slowly wasted away as yeah. an HR professional, I think. So I had to get out of there. Goes back to your thing about you wouldn't have been learning. It sounds like you weren't learning, and if you could, wasn't learning at all. Wasn't yeah. challenged. No, wasn't challenged. It was a good job. It was well paid. The right job title, the right amount of authority, and everything in the organisation, but wasn't challenged at all. So I had to leave, or otherwise I would have wasted away. Yeah. And and then I made what ended up being my biggest ever mistake. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, if you're looking at my LinkedIn profile, you see I went to the disclosure and barring service in Liverpool and spent about five months there as associate HR director. And that was a big mistake. And it was a big mistake for a few reasons. When I left Trafford, I was mulling over setting up my own business. And I was about to do it. I'd, I'd laid all the groundwork for doing it in, in what now is, is, is epic. And I, I was very, very close to doing it. And then just at the point I was about to make my decision final, I got a job offer from the DBS and setting up your own business there's a bit of insecurity in that there's a bit of a leap into the unknown and here was somebody willing to pay me a good salary in a good job and give me lots of opportunities guaranteed income security all that kind of thing and I was I was seduced by that and 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 it was a big mistake real real big mistake on a lot of different levels Uh, it didn't work out for me and it but it took me five months to realize it before I, before I left. And I guess to anticipate your next question, you're probably going to ask why it didn't work out. So let's, let's tell you, well, okay. Well, one was location and Liverpool isn't too far away from me. And there's a direct train route from my town to into Liverpool. And in my head, the journey was only that train journey, which is 40 minutes on the train. I thought that's manageable. What I hadn't figured out was it was, 
15 minutes from me to get to my house to the train station in the first place and park up and get on there. So that made it 55. Then when I got into Liverpool, assuming the trains were on time, which was a rare thing, it was then another 25 to 30 minute walk from Lime Street Station to where the office was in all kinds of weathers carrying heavy bags. So what I thought was a 40 minute commute was much closer to an hour and a half. And that meant that because of the way the train times fell and there was no other way of getting there, unless I wanted to spend loads of money parking and, and traveling, because of the way they fell, I was having to leave the house before anybody was awake. And I was getting back when they'd already had their evening meal and were getting ready for bed. And that didn't make me too happy. On top of that, uh, we had other offices. We had one in the Northeast, we had one in London. And I was expected to spend a lot of time at both of those offices. Now, they're not easy places to get to. They involve overnight stays. Mm. And that wasn't clear to me when I, when I took on the job, but it very quickly became clear that I was having to spend more time away than I wanted to. And then on top of that, a couple of things happened in my, in my personal life. Uh, one was that my wife got pregnant with what is now our fourth child. And all her pregnancies go the same way. In the first trimester, she's very, very sick. After that, settles down. But in that first three months, when we weren't really telling anybody that we were pregnant, she was very sick. And she couldn't, for example, cook food in the house because it, it just sent her off. She was yeah. sick. So she needed me to be there to cook food. And I wasn't because I was working these yeah. hours. That meant I wasn't there at breakfast, wasn't there at evening meal. She also found it really difficult to spend time away from the, the toilet really she needed to be close to a toilet which meant that when the school runs were needed she found it really difficult to get herself away for 45 minutes to go and do the school runs she needed me to do them and I wasn't there to do it so it was causing us a lot of strain a lot of stress Plus, you've got three kids already right three kids already so life's complicated enough mm. there's a there's a tipping point, by the way, with children. And when you reach the fourth, you've gone past it. I've, I've so, understood it between two and three, isn't it? Well, it's one and one to two and then two to three, isn't it? Oh, then... Either way, I'm well past it. <laughs> Either way, I'm, I'm, I've gone, gone beyond the pale on that one. So it was causing us problems at home. And it was a r real tricky situation. And there was no flexible working, no remote working in this organization. They didn't like it. They frowned upon it. They, they didn't have the tech for it either. So you couldn't do anything like that. So I was stuck on this nine to five Monday to Friday, working away, couldn't, couldn't really do it. And we were using my mum to do some of the school runs and, and to help us out. And then my mum got diagnosed with ovarian cancer around about the same time. And although we didn't know at the time, she eventually died a couple of years later from ovarian cancer. I'm but sorry. at the time, she'd just been diagnosed and she was going through the treatment and the chemotherapy was making her quite unwell. So she couldn't help us out either. Mm. And all of these things are coming together. And I told my manager at the time and was told words to the effect of grow a pair. You're a senior manager. You're a man these kinds of things come with the territory. You should be able to just cope with this. Well, I couldn't. I couldn't cope with it. Couldn't, couldn't deal with it. And then I went to the CIPD conference in November 17, so just over three years ago. And I was speaking at that conference. And my speech was about flexible working and about how HR can lead by example and all the things we can do to help people achieve that work-life balance. And I listened to myself preaching to this audience of HR professionals and thought, you, you fucking hypocrite. You know, what good am I if, if I know what to do and I'm telling other people to do it, but I'm not doing it myself. Mm -hmm. And 
by the end of the next day, I'd, I'd left my job and had set up my own, my own business. It was a difficult conversation, I have to say. And, and again, the organization would probably agree that it was very much the right thing for me to go because everything was going wrong for me there uh, in, in lots of different ways. So I set up Epic. Oh, that sounds so stressful. I mean, the interesting, the interesting thing about that when you said it's your biggest mistake, everything, it sounds actually um, like until until the way the guy responded to you, right, the fact that it sounded like a very old school, rigid culture without being able to give you any um, flexibility or understanding. Um, a lot of the reason was just the circumstances were wrong. You know, the community, it was the wrong time for you to take on something that distance in terms of your family and, and the support that was needed. Um there wrong time i mean actually mm. arguably it is interesting that you're you're a guy making this observation and it is a partnership that we enter into these things isn't it that's mm. um and, and when you and at certain peak points you need both family partners being able to do it which is why flexible working which i know is something you're passionate about makes a massive mm. difference yeah it does. it does it does sound like they, you said things were starting to there are a couple of the cultural things i was just saying that's maybe sound, one is the fact that the manager demonstrated no understanding or empathy for your situation and just said sort of which suggests it's one of those sort of stiff upper lip cultures the other one was this idea of not being able to work remotely at all but yet you were able to travel so you must have had a laptop if you had to go and work on the northeast in london so why couldn't you work from home oh, well, we could. yeah we, we did have a laptop you could get a very old out-of-date laptop this was the civil service so getting a laptop in the first place was hard enough and then it was a, a very very old laptop and you could only connect to the civil service network from a civil service office Got you. So you couldn't do it remotely you could only connect when you were in one of their offices something to do with the way their security systems yeah. needed to work VPN or something and, yeah yeah so you could only work from any of their offices they had offices in all the major cities but they were all a long way away mm. Yeah, so, so just, yeah, do it. yeah, and culture, and and arguably, maybe you should have just set up on your own before that. Then maybe as I was thinking back, would you got, say I that? I got close to it. Yeah, I got yeah. close to it twice before, and I think I needed the fuel to to get me to push me over the edge. Because every time I got close to it before, every time I got really close, something would stop me, and that was the lack of security, the the fear factor mm -hmm. as well, and didn't really have what you might call the burning platform until yes. November seventeen. Plus, you've also got the responsibility of keeping keeping four kids, um, mm. yeah, you know, keeping because presumably your wife's not working all of the time. That these times, I don't know if your wife works, but you've got that kind of responsibility of keeping everything going. But and also having the balance, it's tricky. Yeah. Oh, it's really, really, really tricky. tricky, and I don't think there's a right answer to it mm. either. You just survive day by day. So, so in terms of what you do now and and mm. setting up on your own and and having balance but what what have you learned now what recommendations do you ha have okay well in terms of what i do now it's there's i've been struggling to really define myself over the last few years and am i an hr consultant am i an lnd consultant I'm, I'm probably a bit of both and the, the description i've landed upon is i'm a workplace performance consultant and that seems to nicely capture all the different aspects of my work have i got the work-life balance that i need if you ask me on any given day Probably not, but I don't think you can you can measure work-life balance based on one snapshot of any one day. If you measure it across a year, yeah, probably have. There are peaks and troughs in that year, and there are times when I really, really struggle, and last week was one of those. This week is going all right so far, albeit it's only Monday as we record <laughs> this, but yeah. the week's looking okay for me this week, and I'll be able to do a lot more. The thing is about working for yourself in your own businesses, you have a lot more control over who you work with, where and when you work and what kind of work you do. 
you will make mistakes, but they're your own mistakes. They're mistakes that you've chosen to do yourself Mm -hmm. and that you can feel some responsibility for. And therefore, I might make similar mistakes and have similar frustrations as to when I was in employment. But now it's me doing it to me as opposed to somebody else doing it to me. And I can cope with that a lot better. Take responsibility for it. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then sort of what sort of stuff do you get involved in in workplace performance? A bit of everything, I'm guessing, then, is it? Well, it can be. And I think that's a deliberately vague title as well to to perhaps suggest that. So it can be anything from doing L&D workshops or coaching or designing bits of e-learning, remote learning. It can be leadership development. It can be mentoring. It can be HR development. It can be uh, HR projects and all kinds of different things in between. So it can be absolutely anything. A real variety in terms mm. of that and in terms of how how do you get your clients is there people who are setting up on their own I mean and also I mean you you became known as an influencer I'm not sure was that that same year so how does that come about well how do I get my clients I would say a good 95 percent plus come through word of mouth and and why do they come through word of mouth I think I'm really lucky to have a very wide extensive influential and supportive network And that was what enabled me at the right time to launch my business. And that's what's enabled me to sustain it as well. Whether that be on Twitter or LinkedIn or or both, I've got a, I think I've got a relatively high profile, whether that's a good one or not, let let your listeners be the judge of that. But it helps me get work. It helps me to establish my profile, get my voice known, get my face known, and work comes to me through social media and and the profile that I have. And I spent a lot of years building that up. And I do think it does take years. It's not something you can do overnight or in a matter Mm -hmm. of months. From the point I joined Twitter and LinkedIn, probably 2013 to when I set up my own business four years later, that's the amount of time it took for me to feel comfortable enough that I'd got the network around me to launch and to do what I needed to do. I mean, and that's interesting because, I mean, um, did you... Did you interact on those social platforms in order to allow yourself to set up on your own in three or four years time or to become an influencer? Or did you just interact? Because that's because this is diff, not I, I just interested because I, I, I was aware of. So I was definitely aware of you being visible on mm. Twitter and things like that. And I said to you and we, I actually reached out to you, I think, over Twitter because you'd posted something. I can't remember what it was now, but it was very human. It was about kids and family and things like that. And um, and I liked the fact that. I felt like it wasn't a front. And one of the things that comes through very much about what we were talking about is, is authenticity and being, being a real person there. So you can feel like you know you over there. Now, I think you said it was in- it's intentional when I mentioned that to you earlier to be yeah. whole self. But I mean, what does that say about you? And also, I, I don't imagine you were being contrived about reach, you were just reaching out. But I think other people could learn from this about actually interacting authentically on social media could be one of their tools for if in five years time, they want their own business. We should be doing that now. Um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, my, my approach is very, very deliberate and I, it's not contrived. It's not in, in a way that seems um, structured or anything. I, I just often just put stuff out there and it's, it's a reflective of my entire life. And I think you've got 168 hours in a week and you spend about 40 of them working. So when you look at somebody's output on social media, it should be in proportion to what their life is like. So you'll find that I will tweet or post about HR and L&D and things like that. And, And I do, but that probably only represents about a quarter of my overall output. And the rest is about me 
watching I'm a celebrity or me doing things with my kids or me having run-ins with people on, on the, the commute to work or something like that. It's, it's all kinds of different things you get. And but you don't part- uh, you're not partitioning like some people would partition no. certain tools that you're kind of your whole self over all of your platforms then. Well, I used to. I used to partition myself. I reckon I've probably had two incarnations on, on social media. One is the one you see now, and I think I'm happy with the way that that, that looks and feels and, and what that shows about me. Previously, when social media first became a thing, so we're going back 10, 12 years, maybe, when people started using Facebook and Twitter, I did have presence on all, on all those sites then, but I was very, very careful what I put up, and I was very, very cautious and professional and there were some reasons for that and on reflection it backfired because people started to view me in the workplace as this ultra professional almost robotic persona and it was hammered home to me when I I did a charity event through the workplace like a Strictly Come Dancing thing about eight years ago now maybe yeah eight years ago and I signed up for it. it was in supporting a charity and I had to do um, the Argentinian tango. And I did it very, very well, by the way. We, we were robbed in that. We came third, but we really should have won. And it, <laughs> But I'm not bitter about we that We were robbed. All. We were robbed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can search me on YouTube and you'll see what I mean. But anyway, so I did this. And when, when I announced it in the workplace, everybody was astonished that I would actually do something so what they considered brave and risky and, and human as to doing this. And they couldn't really reconcile the, the Gary who was doing this dance with the Gary they saw in the workplace. And yet when I told people in my personal life that was doing it, they all just kind of shrugged their shoulders and yeah. went, yeah. again? Yeah. yeah. And it was entirely in keeping with the Gary that people knew outside of the workplace. And I thought, well, why is there a difference between those things? What is the point of this artificial division? So I thought, sod it. I'm going to get rid of the artificial division. It's not serving me any purpose. In fact, in many ways, it's holding me back in the workplace from developing those human connections and developing great relationships. And I think that the more you progress in your HR career, your leadership career, it's about so much who you know, but how you leverage your relationships and how you influence people and how you get people to like and appreciate you and how you work with your stakeholders much more than it is about what you know mm. and that was a defining moment for me oh, fantastic mm. so yeah we've woven in quite a few things there that we talked about so there's something about authenticity something about work-life balance but not just in terms of living the work-life balance but actually on your social media and being that whole person that holistic person learning yeah. um but the other thing we talked about you you said you feel quite passionate about is about ethical practice talked about earlier didn't we is that's is there something does that come from somewhere in particular or it's just a, a, a something that well, it, it hasn't it hasn't really I mean it's becoming an increasingly important issue within HR and, and L&D and there's a lot of visible public cases that touch on on this as well and any any HR conference you go to whether it's CIPD or, or anybody else they talk about the importance of HR professionals using their voice and using their influence to address issues around organizational behavior individual behavior and I've been doing that for a while and, and it's, it's great that lots more people are now starting to do it last week was the CIPD conference and Megan Wrights was there talking about speaking truth to power and the year before John Amici was talking on very similar themes so it's a common theme at many HR conferences I seem to be known 
for it. And I think what, what I do is just simply speak up when I see something that, that is wrong. Now, it, it does get me in trouble a lot of the time. It does get me in quite a lot of trouble. And it can be a fairly divisive topic as well. But a few weeks ago, I, I was wondering out loud whether I ought to write a book, but I've not got a clue what, what I might write a book about. So I took to Twitter and I said, if I was to write a book, what would you think it would be on? And a good half of the responses said it would be on ethics in HR and organizations. And that must be something that comes across loud and clear in the way I talk about things and the way I, I deal with things. As an example, my eldest daughter, who's 15, when we were all in lockdown the first time, she was struggling with remote working. She was struggling with studying remotely. And she got not just her, but the whole of her year group got quite a nasty email from the school telling them to pull the socks up, to mm. do better, and, and that they would be naming and shaming people who weren't working properly remotely. And I screenshot this and I deleted any any personal details, but I, I said to people, what do you think about this? And I've already... I think I saw this, it. yeah. Yeah, and it got several hundred replies mm. and and people were, were in agreement with me. But I tend to do things like that a lot, mm. where I see things happen, they whether I've got any connection. Out. Yeah, whether I've got any connection with it or not, I will call things out. And often it works, often it works. It has backfired on me in the past, but that's not going to stop me because where things are wrong, they're wrong. And I think people need to see that these things are wrong. So I do try to call things out. I think it's part of our, our nature as HR professionals to do that. Well, not, all, not, not everybody, but I mean, it, it shows you being very values driven and very courageous. I think mm. it's, I think, I think it's a good HR value, but it is certainly, I think some people would feel quite scared about that because quite often they're worried about the consequences. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I don't, I mean, I suppose, would you have felt as able to do that when you were in an, org in an organization as you do as an independent? Yes. And I did do it on many, many occasions. And I could, I could stand here and tell you lots of stories about mm. unethical behavior and how I challenged that in organizations. So it is a theme running back through my entire career. And I think if you were able to speak to my mum and ask her what I was like as a child, she would tell you stories about when I've stood up and, and yeah. spoke out about fairness and, and things like that. Even when I was arguing with my brother when we were toddlers and things like that, she would tell you lots of stories about that. So it does seem to be a core principle of mine: fairness, yeah. equity, yeah. things like that. Sure, values. Now I get, I get it. That's uh, and, and it, I mean, it certainly links to H um, to CIPD in terms of it's a, a really valuable trait for HR. That's one of the things that they ask about, isn't it, in terms of ethics yeah. and integrity? But you have mm -hmm. to be courageous to do it um, and to and to call it out. And, and I guess is that also would make you an influencer because people will see that you are putting that out in terms of ethics and um, it, it is influencing to other people because we see it and think, wow, that's brave. And there's a difference as well. I was thinking, I, I, I won't say there's another person who is quite visible on Twitter, um, but I see them call things out, but I feel like they're calling things out for the sake of it, for attention, as opposed to there seems like a different motivation sometimes you see people put things out to to be contentious as opposed to put things out because you think it's wrong and you want to change things and that's me putting an interpretation on it but you do see those sorts there yeah and i i think i know who you're talking about as well and i would agree with your interpretation about that particular person um so it is about the way you do it yeah. really whether you're doing it to spoil for a fight and an argument is, is different and i think the person you're thinking about is probably doing it for that 
that side of things to cause unrest. And they might well be raising the visibility of some issues, but I think they might be going about it in a, in a slightly different way. I, I try to, but I try to relate it to myself as much as anything else. So I will talk about things that happened to me, like my daughter with, with her remote study and so on, and where, the way my wife's been treated in some places she's worked and my own experiences. And, and I tend to relate it very much to me. And that, again, goes back to my principle of authenticity and the mm-hmm. whole person. So I talk from a personal perspective, usually. Real ownership there. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I, I'm so much I could carry on listening to you, Gary. It's been, I've really enjoyed this. I, was, I suppose in terms of in the interest of us um, closing this down constructively, in terms of your advice to your younger self, if there is anything you'd do differently, it sounds like you've been very authentic as we've used that, I probably overused that word in this podcast. Um, but would you do anything differently? Would you advise yourself to change anything if you were to go back 20, 25 years? it's difficult with, with hindsight because I'm quite happy with the way my life has turned out. And if I changed anything, it might not turn out the way it has. I, I run the Advent Blogs series every December and the theme this year is what if. And I think a lot of people are probably going to interpret that theme from a, a sliding doors perspective and what might you change. And I reflect on it that way too. Would I change anything? At the time, I probably would have done. But looking back, no. And what advice would I give my younger self? I think a piece of advice my mum shared with me and and regularly used to share with me was it's just a phase. Whatever it is that's happening to you, whatever your views on it might be, and you'll go through lots of difficult times in your life, it is just a phase. And there is better things around the corner. Quite how far away from that corner you are will differ, but things will improve, will get better. And, And if you can plan your way out of these things and move towards them, then then you'll benefit. From it. So my mum always used to tell me that. And I think that's looking yeah. back, she's right. Things mm-hmm. are just a phase. Yeah. So don't, don't get too hung up on it at the time. Just keep on, keep on yeah. swimming <laughs> yeah. and you'll get there in the end. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Gary, I know you are really well known on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, but for the benefit of people who perhaps haven't come across you, would you mind just sharing how they can follow you and, and, and on there? And obviously I'll put on the show notes, your contact details. Yeah, well, on Twitter, you'll find me as at Gary underscore Cookson. And if you just search Gary Cookson on LinkedIn, you should be able to find me. I'd be pleased to connect with anybody. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I've really thoroughly enjoyed having you um, on our Real HR series, Gary. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Brilliant. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising, proudly brought to you by Actor Software, the joined up performance and talent management solution. You can access links to any of the information or resources mentioned in the show via the podcast page at www.hruprising.com. If you like what we do, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and leave a review. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising.